Arkunda Giddy Govardhan Akijai. Vrindavindam Akijai, Matura Dham Akijai, Navadrip Mayapuram Akijai, Jagannathadam Akijai. Gangamai Jamuna Devi Kijai, Bhakti Devi Kijai, Tulsi Maharani Kijai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Kijai, Gora Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Varanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shumate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesa Sunyavadi Paskatyade Satani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamstra Shri Rupam Sadvajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitamstam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Paditana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakalpa Tivistra Kripa Sindhavyevacha Patitanam Pavanevyo Vaishnavyevyo Namo Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so it's June 22nd, 2022 from Hawaii, reading Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Creative Impetus, Chapter 1, Activities of Maharaj Priyavrata, Text 18. Yatsat sapatnam vijipishamano. Yatsat sapatnam vijipishamano. Viheshunir vishyajateta purvam. Viheshunir she ne shukamam vicharad vipaschit. Please chant. Anyone who. Anyone who. Shut. Shut. Six. Sapatnam. Adversaries. Adversaries. Vijish Isham Anaha. Desiring to conquer. Desiring to conquer. Griheshu. In household life. Near Visya, having entered, Yateta, must try, Purvam, first, Atyeti, conquers, 
Conference. Durga Ashtritaha. Durga Ashtritaha. Being in a fortified place. Being in a fortified place. Urjita Arin. Urjita Arin. Very strong enemies. Very strong enemies. Decreased. Common. Lusty desires. Lusty desires. Can go. Can go. Vipaschit. The most experienced learned. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Mother, you should be okay. Okay, you probably want to mute yourself because you've got a lot of static from your end. Yes, I'm going to do that. Yes. Okay, thank you. Srila Prabhupada's translation. One who is situated in household life and who systematically conquers his mind and five sense organs is like a king in his fortress who conquers his powerful enemies. After one has been trained in household life and his lusty desires have decreased, he can move anywhere without danger. Srila Prabhupada's purport. The Vedic system of four Varnas and four Ashramas is very scientific, and its entire purpose is to enable one to control the senses. Before entering household life, Prahasta Ashrama, a student is fully trained to become a Jitendriya, a conqueror of the senses. Such a mature student is allowed to become a householder, and because he was first trained in conquering his senses, he retires from household life and becomes Vanaprastha as soon as the strong waves of youthful life are passed and he reaches the verge of old age at 50 years or slightly more. Then, after being further trained, he accepts sannyas. He is then a fully learned and renounced person who can move anywhere and everywhere without fear of being captivated by material desires. The senses are considered very powerful enemies. As a king in a strong fortress can conquer powerful enemies, so a householder in Grahasta Ashrama, household life, can conquer the lusty desires of youth and be very secure when he takes Vanaprastha and sannyas. Yashat sapatnam vijigishamano greheshu nirvishya yatetapurvam atetitur gashrita urjitarim kshineshukamam vichared upaschit. One who is situated in household life and who systematically conquers his mind and five sense organs is like a king in his fortress who conquers his powerful enemies. After one has been trained in household life and his lusty desires have decreased, he can move anywhere without danger. So here's Lord Brahma continuing to try to convince King, uh, he's not king yet, <laughs> uh, Priyavrata, to become the king, to become the emperor of the world, which will, as Prabhupada explains later, involve also getting married. And that uh, the concept of being a single king like Bhishma, uh, of course he also decided not to become king, not to marry, and then he said, he, first he said, I'll take a vow never to marry, and then when uh, Satyavati's father said that's not enough, uh, he said, oh, first he said, I won't become king. I don't remember. Anyway, anyway, he had to do both. He had to not become king and not marry. So the general concept is that the king should be married. So this is what Lord Brahma is asking him to do, to both become the emperor 
and to be married. And he's saying, actually, this is a better position for you than just trying to be a lifetime renunciate. You'll be more secure. More secure in what? Better in what? Better in detachment. Better in control of the senses. So this is about, Prabhupada's talking about controlling the mind, controlling the senses and detachment. So we're going to think about, well, why do we care? Why do we want sense and mind control and detachment? And how do we ultimately get that? How does that happen? And we're going to look at at two ways it happens. Uh, First of all, uh, ultimately it only happens through bhakti. But the system of ashram dharma, Prabhupada talks about four varnas and four ashramas, although this is uh, more specifically focused on ashram, uh, Prabhupada says is very scientific as a support system for someone who's in bhakti. And, you know, it's interesting that this particular point still in many parts of the world among the Gaudiya Vaishnavas is just not understood. People just don't get this. <laughs> uh, it, it's fascinating, but uh, this particular point that's being made here is something that it seems a lot of people just don't understand. And the fallout from their not understanding this is socially and spiritually quite severe. And those who do understand it uh, become very happy. So why do we want detachment, sense control, and uh, mind control? (laughs) Mind control. How to control our own mind, not someone else controlling your mind. Well, if we think about it at all, we would understand that all of our suffering is due to attachment and lack of control over our senses and mind. And it also fascinates me that this particular philosophical point is often not well understood even by practitioners of bhakti yoga, even by people who've been practicing bhakti yoga for 10 years or 20 years. They still often think that their suffering is due to their external situations rather than their attachment and their lack of control over their mind and their senses. And, you know, from a mundane point of view, the conception that suffering is due to external factors seems completely logical and reasonable. If somebody punches me in the face, my suffering is due to the fact that somebody punched me in the face. If somebody steals my wallet, my suffering is due to the fact that somebody stole my wallet. I mean, it, it's, it just seems very reasonable. You know, if I break my leg, my suffering is due to the fact that I've broken my leg. If someone I trust betrays that trust, then my suffering is due to their betrayal. I mean, just it, it seems pretty straightforward. And with this view of suffering, one works at trying to control one's environment. This is the mood in, in Tamagun and in Rajagun. In Tamagun, one is willing to control the environment by illegal or sinful means if legal and pious means are not easy. And in Rajagun, one wants to control one's environment through pious means. But the, the focus is the same. Let me control my environment. And in Tamagun, one tries to do that generally by withdrawing from difficulty or... Uh, using uh, violence, 
And in Rajagun, one engages with difficult, external difficulty according to Dharma. But it's still externally focused. If I could just make enough money and if I could just associate with people who are going to be kind and loyal to me and if I can uh, you know, take the right food and the right medicines and do the right exercises and keep my body from harm and you know, if I can just arrange the things in my life so that there's nothing causing me difficulty then I won't have any difficulty. Now, of course, there's several problems with this. First of all, as all of us have experienced, being able to arrange all the externals of our life is not something that's fully under our control. We have some influence over the externals of our life, certainly, uh, but it's not something that we have absolute control. There are five factors of action, and we are just one of those factors. (laughs) We're not all of them. And we certainly... Uh, don't have a lot of control if we're trying to get other people to treat us the way that we think that we should be treated. Whether it's our family members or our friends or people in the workplace, people are going to act the way they're going to act. They're, they just are. And they may be considerate of us and they may not be considerate of us. And even if they tell us that they care about us and even if they tell us sincerely that they care about us, uh, they may still not act in a way that's pleasing to us. So if our sense of happiness and freedom from suffering depends on the externals of our life, we're going to have a hard time being very happy. It's, you know, we'll be happy at times, a little bit here and there, uh, but we're really going to have a very difficult time being consistently happy and consistently satisfied. I mean, we could also make the point that that kind of happiness is very superficial. It's, It's not anything deep. It's more, you know, creature comforts. It's like, you know, a dog has a nice bed and food to eat and the master pats him on the head and so he's happy. But that, that kind of thing is, is not a real inner sense of happiness. And we know that for a fact because we know that there are many people in the world who have a very nice external life and end up becoming addicted to some intoxicant or even committing suicide and struggling with depression, even though they have lots of money and fame and a happy family and and good friends and so forth. So if one is a little bit more thoughtful, one can understand that it's how I think and feel about what is happening to me that determines my happiness. And again, this is a point that seems to be difficult even for many of us practicing Krishna consciousness and practicing bhakti yoga. I... I just can't count how many times people come to me for help who are completely convinced that their problems are all external and if they could manipulate their external environment that they would be happy. And they're generally coming to me for advice as to how to better manipulate their external environment. And if I try to say to them, you know, really what you want to uh, change is your internal environment. (laughs) You want to change your, your mind your control of your mind and your detachment. Yes, and Krishna says it, and nobody can be happy without peace. And he says that peace is what comes at the end of detachment. Yes, in Bhagavad Gita 12.12, after Jyaga, after there is Shanti, there is peace. So why does detachment bring peace? Now, detachment is not a mode of ignorance, well, I don't care, you know, whatever. Uh, that's not what it is, but detachment is that I'm not this body, I'm not part of this world, and my happiness is within. 
and I am convinced that whatever happens to me is arranged by the Supreme Lord for my good and for ultimate good in general. Therefore, Prabhupada says in Krishna Book Chapter 20, the materialist thinks that everything is very aggressive, and to one who's in Krishna consciousness, one thinks that everything is happily situated. So if one can control one's mind, and from this mind, from the control of the mind, one also controls one's senses, one can become happy. One can find happiness within. And doing this on a basic level, of course, is sattvagun. And in sattvagun, there's a sense of happiness and knowledge that is not dependent on external circumstances. Isn't that nice? Just imagine if we had a life where our, our happiness was not dependent on our external circumstances. You know, just like, wow. So you could say to people, let me teach you how to manipulate your external circumstances. Or we could say, let me teach you how to be happy regardless of your external circumstances. So one is not within your control and one is. Of course, we have the example of Hiranyakashipu. Hiranyakashipu, he had all his external ducks in a row, so to speak. You know, he was the master of the universe, practically speaking. It was one of the benedictions he asked from Lord Brahma that I will have no rival. And he had taken away the seed of Indra. He was controlling everything. He was controlling when the trees would give fruit. I mean, he had all the mystic perfections. Imagine that. If you had all the superpowers, you know, people are really into some uh, fictional Superman or whatever, Spider-Man. But imagine if you had all the superpowers, all the mystic powers. You could create a planet if you wanted. You could get whatever you wanted. And still, he wasn't happy. We know he wasn't happy because it said he was always intoxicated. Intoxication is a prime indicator of a lack of happiness. And also, he was yelling at the demigods for no reason. He was severely chastising them for no reason. So, uh, we all know that if we get upset with other people without cause, that we're not happy. (laughs) So, Hiranyakashipu was not happy. And... Prahlad Maharaj said to him, when Narendikashipu said to Prahlad, you are consorting with my enemy, Vishnu, and Prahlad said, your only enemy is your uncontrolled mind and senses. You don't really have any other enemy. So it gives us freedom from suffering, internal happiness. It also gives us clarity of understanding. It's one of the symptoms of sattvagun, is that one knows what is to be done and what is not to be done what is binding and what is liberating, what is to be feared and what is not to be feared. Well, that's a pretty cool thing to have. I'd like to know what is to be done and what is not to be done, what is binding and what is liberating. Wouldn't everybody want to know that? It's one of the big things we're always asking ourselves. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I go here or should I go there? Suppose we knew what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And it also certainly makes for better relationships. If I'm detached and my happiness is within, if I'm not dependent on how other people treat me in order to feel happy, then I can deal with other people from a platform of freedom without having some sort of demand on others. If I believe my happiness is externally based, then I'm going to have a lot of demands on the other people with whom I associate. And when they don't fulfill my demands, then I'm going to become angry at them, or I'm going to become angry at myself. I'm going, to become, I'm going to blame them if I think that they just don't care about me. And I'm going to blame myself if I think I'm not expert enough to manipulate them. 
Uh, and so I'm going to, it's not going to be very happy. But if I have no demands, that, you know, however somebody treats me, my happiness is within. Uh, then I can just love people. And I can just care about people without being concerned about uh, some kind of external result. I'm loving them and carrying them from my own inner abundance. Of course, that's just sattvagun. And sattvagun is not entirely stable. And I'm sure we've all experienced that as well. That we can be situated mostly in sattvagun and then, you know, Rajas comes along or Thomas comes along and, and knocks us over. You know, I, I think of Rajas and Thomas like Roger and Thomas, you know, these two kind of bullies. <laughs> that, that there you are nicely in sattva and they just kind of come and, and push you over and taunt you and tease you and, and, and influence you. So this happens. Right? Krishna says the modes are always vying for supremacy. Sometimes Rajas defeats Sattva and Thomas. Sometimes Thomas defeats Rajas and Sattva and so forth. But even, even though Sattva is not steady and is influenced by Rajas and Thomas, we all experience that when we're in Sattva, we have this sense of happiness and knowledge. We're not dependent on the externals. So if we want to get to full detachment and full control of the mind, we actually have to get out of the modes entirely and come to bhakti. Only bhakti will give us full detachment. And the way that bhakti gives us full detachment, interestingly, perhaps ironically, is by full attachment. Maya shakta mana parta. Maya ashakta. To have attachment. Right? We have this word raga, attachment, but we also have this ragatmaka bhaktas, <laughs> the, the devotees who are fully attached. That when we're fully attached to the Supreme in loving service, we naturally are detached from trying to enjoy the externals of the material world. It, it becomes laughable. It, it just becomes completely uh, absurd. One does not become adverse to the material, to material enjoyment, what just becomes uh, neutral, as they say, it becomes uh, it becomes an absurdity. If the supreme Lord respects me, and the supreme Lord loves me, and the supreme Lord reciprocates with me exactly the way that I want, then why would I have any concern as to whether my family member or my friend or my work person or whatever? Uh, deals with me nicely or not. It, it would be irrelevant. It would, I would not care if in a mode of ignorance way. I just, it would just be irrelevant. I, it's like if you're Bill Gates, if somebody gives you a dollar or not, what does it matter? It, it just has no meaning. You know, so, well, I'm not going to give you the dollar. It's like, who cares? You know, I got billions in the bank. It just doesn't matter. Prabhupada talks about this with Dhruva Maharaj. How Dhruva Maharaj that, you know, it's explained, I think, in the Harivamsa, where he says, you know, I just wanted broken pieces of glass, and now I have a diamond. And Prabhupada says that he was fully filled up. He was fully complete. You know, again, if I've just eaten a full meal, what do I care if somebody gives me food or not? It, it's irrelevant. It just doesn't matter. I don't, I don't need it. Yeah? I mean, I, I found this uh, when I was traveling for many, many years, and I would travel with just one small suitcase, and, and people would, would sometimes give me big, bulky gifts, and it was just, even sometimes they were very nice things, but they had no, I had no interest in them. I had, you know, I had everything that I needed. 
So that's what bhakti does. Bhakti actually gets to the root of our desire to be happy, our desire to be loved, our desire to feel satisfied. You know, all of our desires, it gets to the root and actually fulfills them internally on a real level of the soul. And only bhakti does that. You know, the other forms of yoga may give one a detachment and liberation, but they don't give one ultimate fulfillment. Savaipam samparob dharma, yato bhakti or hoksajaya, hoitu kiya pratita, yad yatma supersedati. All right, now we have a problem, and all of us know what this problem is. That theoretically, theologically, philosophically, we can understand, and again, some people even struggle, many people even understand, struggle to understand this even theoretically. But at least theoretically, philosophically, we can understand my suffering is due to my material attachment, and bhakti is the only thing that's going to get rid of that material attachment. Uh, people who don't even understand this theoretically, they think my suffering is due to being in the material world, being in this place, and if I serve Krishna, I will go to another place where the externals are all nice and I don't suffer. Um, and of course, that's a very swarga type of view uh, about bhakti. But those, you know, when we understand, and it might take us a decade or two, when we understand theoretically, philosophically, all right, my suffering is not due to my externals. My suffering is due to how I think and feel about my externals, how I choose to respond to my externals. And the way I'm going to deal with that, the only way I'm going to deal with that fully, is to become fully satisfied within, so that my externals become irrelevant. Whether they're nice or not nice has equal, will have equal meaning to me because I'll be functioning on another level. And so therefore, Krishna Das Kavira says, you know, what is good and bad in this world? These things have no meaning. However, we know that we don't generally get to that place in one moment. We could. I was just hearing a lecture where Prabhupada was saying, as he says uh, so many times, that it is possible to become fully Krishna conscious in an instant, but that generally it's a gradual process. So gradual process means, again, as we have uh, all experienced, I'm sure, in our own lives, and if we're nichesittas, then we've experienced it by seeing it in others, that working on this theoretical platform, I apply the principles of bhakti yoga, and I experience directly, dharmam, I directly experience to some degree that I'm getting genuine internal spiritual satisfaction and therefore I experience to some degree that I am getting materially detached. However, because it's a gradual process, I have this material attachment still hanging around while I'm working at getting to the root. What do I do about this? So the analogy that I like to give is that of a broken bone. So if you break your arm, let's say, you, let's say you really break it very severely, you know, you get like a compound fracture where the bone's sticking out of the skin, you know, it's really a mess, not just some little hairline fracture. And so it's extremely painful. All right, so the way to heal it is to put it in a cast, right? So that's bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is actually healing things. It's getting things back to the right position. But there's a problem and this is, is interesting, uh, that if the body is, is in a lot of pain, 
So inflammation causes pain, but the sensation of pain also produces more inflammation. So the sensation of pain is like an alarm bell in the brain. It tells the brain there's some danger. And uh, therefore, the brain is, is dealing with the body to try to take care of the pain. But in doing that, it actually causes more inflammation. And in a twist of an ironic twist, if pain goes on for too long, it actually prevents healing. And you can think of this very logically. I talk about this many times, but it's, it's a very logical thing that if the, our brain senses that we're in danger, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, and the sympathetic nervous system is designed for very short-term emergency behaviors. You know, fighting with the enemy, running away from the enemy, hiding from the enemy. And in order to send energy to the parts of the body like the arms and legs and the uh, basic animal parts of the brain. Uh, therefore, the brain turns down or even shuts off digestion and the immune response and higher order thinking skills in order to take care of the immediate emergency. So pain is meant to be there briefly. It is designed to be a brief event to tell the, to signal the body that there is some sort of danger and that some action needs to be taken. It's, it's kind of like a fire alarm. You know, so a fire alarm is meant to go off to tell you that there's fire, but once you put out the fire, you want the alarm to go off. If the alarm keeps ringing and ringing and ringing, uh, then it's going to drive you crazy. So the problem with some severe fracture is that there's still some message of pain even after the cast is put on. Now, the message of pain after the cast is put on not only serves no useful purpose because you can't move your arm anyway, it's in a cast, but it also is causing a problem because it's not allowing the body to heal the inflammation. Therefore, the doctors will prescribe painkillers for a few days. Or you may have had this experience um, if you had some dental work done. Right, you had a tooth pull, you had you know, some sort of dental work done. So why do they give you painkillers? I mean, it's not just that they care about you and they don't want you to feel pain. That, that's not the only reason. But by giving you painkillers, it helps to reduce the inflammation and it helps the body to heal because you don't need that pain signal. The dentist has already taken care of the problem. There isn't any danger anymore. The, the pain is, is just a problem. So when you're in bhakti, you really don't need the screaming of the senses and the mind anymore because you're, you're taking care of the problem. You don't, you don't need them. So you need to have some kind of a short-term painkiller. Now, a painkiller in and of itself will not heal the body. If you have a serious fracture in your arm or you have a toothache and you just take a painkiller, your problem's going to get worse, not better. You have to get to the root. But if you're getting to the root, a painkiller is very helpful to healing on a short-term basis. And that is what Varnashram is. Varnashram is a, a prop. In and of itself, it's useless. Shrama Evahi Kevalam. Bhagavatam is crystal clear that if you do your duties according to Varna and Ashram without devotional service, it's all useless. I mean, materially, yes. You'll take, get a better birth, you'll go to the heavenly planets and 
you know, you'll have a nice dream instead of a nightmare. So I guess we could say that it has some use that way, but it's not really ultimately useful. It's not really taking care of the problem. But as a support system, it's very useful. Again, you know, you've got your bones sticking out from your skin and you just they just give you a shot of, of morphine or something that's not going to cure the bone. But you've got that cast on. That's another thing. Then, you know, but you don't, and it's not permanent. You don't need the painkillers permanently. You just need the painkillers for a short time. So in bhakti, one does not actually need to depend on varna and ashram dharmas, ultimately. Ultimately, when these things become, uh, they, they, they lose their utilization. One may continue to follow them to set an example, as Krishna talks about in the Bhagavad Gita, but one no longer needs them to help in detachment. But the system of Varna and Ashram is very, very, very useful as a support system in Bhakti to help in detachment. I mean, it's also useful for people not in Bhakti just kind of to have a sane, civilized, peaceful society, um, which is a temporary, mundane use. So it has some use like that. So let's look particularly at the system of Ashram, which Prabhupada talks about. He was very scientific as far as controlling the mind and the senses. And, you know, obviously we're talking about sexual desires. We're talking about gross physical sexual desires, subtle emotional sexual desires. We're also talking about uh, desires for having some control, having a home, having money, and like that. And the honest truth is that the vast, vast majority of normal, healthy human beings are going to have these desires. And not only are normal, healthy human beings going to have these desires, after all, uh, our, our bodies are designed to reproduce. We have fertility, we have an urge for reproduction. But that's not the only reason we have these desires. We also have these desires because they're the closest approximation to what we're looking for spiritually. Spiritually, we're looking for a total loving relationship with a perfect person where we give ourselves completely and at the same time we retain our identity. This is a chintabeta beta tattva, simultaneous oneness and difference. And materially, we try to achieve that uh, through uh, gross physical sexual intercourse where we fully join with another person in to- total vulnerability and that we become one with them, and at the same time we keep our identity. So that's what we're trying to achieve. Uh, Of course, uh, gross sexual activity doesn't deliver on that fully at any time. It's a, we're not these bodies, it's a physical act, and even if there's emotional connection, still it's not, uh, it's not what we're looking for as a soul. Of course, for one who dedicates their sexual behavior to Krishna, then that's another thing. That's like offering our food to Krishna. And Prabhupada says in that kind of sex, one can see Krishna. But sex in and of itself never really approaches what we're looking for spiritually. And any honest person would tell you that even on a material, gross material level, gross sex is not always uh, living up even to its ultimate promise. Just like food, you know. I mean, how many times... Do we eat an absolutely delicious, knock-it-out-of-the-ballpark meal? You know, sometimes. It's not that every single time we eat, it's amazing. 
you know, a lot of the times food is just food and sometimes it's boring and it's the same way with with gross physical sex. Sometimes it may be amazing and sometimes it's boring and sometimes it's somewhere in between. And the same with the emotional relationship, with the subtle sexual relationship in the, in a marriage. You know, sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it's awful and sometimes it's boring and sometimes it's in between. But anyway, it's this desire actually for Krishna that's pushing the living entity to want to have this type of gross and subtle relationship. So you've got the biological urge to reproduce, which is of course extremely strong during the time of of peak fertility in youthful life, when a person is most likely to be healthy and most likely to be very fertile, so the desires are extremely strong. And the desire is ultimately there because it's a desire for for union with God. It's a desire for a loving devotional service with God that's been perverted through matter and expressed through matter, as Prabhupada so nicely explains in Chaitanya Charitamrita. So while we're working on bhakti, the best painkiller for most people during this youthful life is marriage. And we, we have, I see a serious problem among our devotee sangha, just like there are many people who still think that you know, we're suffering because I'm geographically in the material world, and if I were to geographically move myself to the spiritual world, I wouldn't suffer. Uh, there are many, many people who think, you know, I should force myself to be a renunciate my whole life because marriage is entangling. And of course, there's so many verses in the Bhagavatam about marriage being entangling, and in fact, Priyavrata himself was feeling exactly like this. I should stay a lifetime renunciate because marriage is entangling. And there's, there's certainly truth to that. If one could do like Daksha's uh, sons, his 10,000 sons and then his 1,000 sons, and come to this detachment without going through household life, then one should do that. But most people can't. And when they try to do it that way, they end up being inauthentic on so many levels. And I see this over, I've seen this for decades, over and over and over again. Uh, people who artificially stay renounced, usually it's men, but sometimes it's women. And generally they're having some kind of, I would call it thievery. They're, instead of getting their gross and subtle desires fulfilled legitimately, in a marriage with another living, breathing human being uh, for whom they take responsibility, they're, they're doing other things. They're, I mean, just to be very frank, they're watching porn, they're, you know, it, it, or they're stealing emotionally. I was just recently dealing with this one apparent brahmachari who, you know, was struggling, struggling with pornography, but also constantly trying to set up emotional relationships with women where under the, the guise of taking spiritual advice and spiritual guidance and talking about spiritual subjects, he was just simply trying to steal feminine energy on a subtle level. And this is a hindrance to one's spiritual life. If one is trying to steal gross sensual pleasure and subtle sensual pleasure without actually taking responsibility, without doing it in a dharmic way, so it causes a whole disturbance to the person who's doing that. It causes a disturbance to the people that he's trying to steal from. And it makes a mockery of, of the renounced order. And, you know, we, we all know this and we've all seen this. 
you know, Jaidoy Swami told me that 80% of the people to whom Prabhupada gave sannyas were not able to maintain it. And it becomes revealed periodically, you know, that such and such renunciate is actually sneaking and doing this and that. I mean, it, it comes out all the time. And another problem is that if people have this kind of mentality, you know, I have to stay renunciate, 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 when they finally crack, you know, at 35 or 40 or 45 or 50, uh, and then they get married, and this happens again sometimes with women, though I see it more often with men, then their wife and their home and their, their income and their children represent their shame to them. These people embody their sense of shame. And such a mentality is not likely to bring them or anyone else even a modicum of material happiness. You know, the my wife represents my shame at not being able to maintain my renunciation. You know, what an awful thing. You know, you have your spouse personifying your shame and your children personifying your shame and your home personifying your shame. And where is the reciprocation of service and love that is the ideal of householder life that Shiva Prabhupada talks about in reference to Kardama Muni and Devahuti? So it, 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 this concept that one should artificially be in a renounced order really messes up individuals and it really messes up the society as a whole. The way things are supposed to go is as Prabhupada describes so nicely in this purport, that if you're trained properly as a brahmachari when you're a child and a teenager, that then you can learn how to have a Krishna-centered household. You can learn how to have bhakti and the grahasta ashram together. That the grahasta ashram is part of your bhakti and bhakti is part of your grihasta ashram. And if one does this, then one is very, very likely to reach actual detachment, as Prabhupada says here, by around age 50. Uh, we see this practically. I mean, we see so many people who've taken up the Grahasta Ashram in the proper spirit and perform bhakti simultaneously, hopefully with their spouse, hopefully with their children, if possible. And we see that the you know inflamed, insane desires of youth gradually cool. And gradually the relationship between husband and wife becomes more as spiritual friends, deep spiritual friends on a journey of spiritual life together and becomes less and less and less about gross or subtle uh, sensuality. So it gets to the point that when the couple reaches middle age and the children are grown and the wife's fertility is, is over, and then the, the couple is no longer interested in gross or even subtle sexual behavior. And then they can either together or separately take up a renounced ashram and be strong here. Prabhupada says very secure. So we see this practically. And I find it very sad, very unfortunate that many of the people who you know, wave flags of Varnashram don't encourage marriage for their followers, for their young followers. And best to marry young. Prabhupada said to marry after 30 is generally not so pleasing. Best to marry young when the desires are strong, when the fertility is strong, when one has full energy for earning a living and full energy for running after little children. You know, that's when it's supposed to be done. That's its proper 
like it says in Ecclesiastes in the Bible, to everything there is a season. And then one can retire when one is still relatively young. I mean, 50 is, is not that old. Generally at 50, you're not, you know, in a wheelchair on <laughs> an oxygen tank. You can still do so much for the world, but you can do it fearlessly. Why? Because by that time, your bhakti has really matured. You've been practicing bhakti at that point, hopefully for decades, and your real support system of your, you know, your your real cure rather is is taking effect, and your support system has worked. If the mind and the senses go, you know, I want that. You say you had that. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was awful. Sometimes it was boring. Whatever you already had that, and the mind goes, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need it. And you're just, you're safe and you're secure. So this is a very scientific system, how to actually become happy. To become happy by finding happiness within, to find happiness within through bhakti, and while we're engaged in the process of bhakti, to take up the support system of Varnashram as much as it is appropriate for us as individuals. And this way, what we call pravritti marg and nivritti marg, work actually in harmony with one each with each other in bhakti. As Rupa Goswami says, those who are qualified to take up bhakti are those who have some taste for it and who are neither too attached nor too detached. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Nobody else is going to. Anybody else want to go first? Okay, I love the subject. Um, boy, we can't hear enough about how we're always trying to adjust the externals to solve our problems. Um, not just non devotees, but you know, even devotees. We that, that, that can be problematic rather than know that once we become attached to Krishna, when we purify our heart, then all of our problems become solved, or, or certainly insignificant. I guess it won't be, we can't solve the problems of the material world, even our, our material problems, but once we're tasting a Krishna consciousness at that Amaran, we're satisfied, they don't bother us. How do we get from the point of, um, how do we get there? Uh, so often I, I, I may become, you know, I, I, I can preach it, and I preach it all the time to people. They call me with, with external problems, and I say, listen, I can't solve your external problems, but we, we can, there is an answer, which has been around, you know, since the beginning of time, and that is by, by turning inward and purifying our hearts. Well, that's but, another, but that's we, another we, class in our heart. I mean, that's another class. Mm. You know, this particular, we can only talk about so many things in one class. So this was really about the principle of the thing. Mm. Great principle. It's, it's, I mean, and, and like you say, first you've got to get the principle. And I see that a lot of us don't. Or we forget it. You know, again, I can't count how many people right. contact me and ask me to fix their externals or tell them how to fix their externals and freak out about their externals. 
And when you say to them, hey, it's internal, they often get angry. And they're chanting Hare Krishna, you know? It's like, hello, do you read the Bhagavad Gita? And I can't count how many people, you know, don't understand how the ashram system is supposed to support bhakti, and they're just artificial renunciates. So, you know, those, those principles that our suffering and happiness is entirely in our own hands, 100%. I have 100% control over my happiness and distress. 100%. And I will achieve that through bhakti. And while I'm working on bhakti, I should take help from these support systems as appropriate. Just all I talked about today was that as a principle. Now, how do we do that? Let's say as another class. Okay, good. Well, you'll, you'll leave us in a cliffhanger. And we'll look well, well to that. you but know, you got to get the appropriate verse, you know? Right. <laughs> so, you got it. So, one thing that I'm very committed to, as I'm sure you've noticed over all these years, is that I really like to stick to the verse and purport that's in front of me. Mm. So, you know, I've. I've <laughs> I've been in so many classes where the person reads the verse in purple and then talks about whatever they want to talk about. So, you know, I, I really like to stick to that, but, but how to do that? I mean, we talked about that a little bit today, that, you know, I'm feeling my satisfaction in my relationship with Krishna. So this means, of course, doing bhakti, not just the, me- the external mechanics of it, but actually developing my relationship with Krishna. You know, but I also find it very helpful just to remind myself of the principle. You know, if, if my mind is going, hey, hey, mind, hello, hello, you're responsible for your happiness and distress. You, and only you. You know, you can take some external means, sure, you know, you cut your finger, put a mandate on it. Jai Haribo, you know, somebody's obnoxious, well, just block them on social media. Okay, fine. But that's not ultimately what's going to cause your happiness and distress. You know, and you just remind your mind. And then the mind, actually the mind is subservient. And then the mind will say, oh yeah, (laughs) that's right. And you say, okay, what can I do? What's totally 100% within my control right now that I can do? Mm. You know, how, how can I, what can I do with my thoughts, feelings, and behavior that's completely under my control? Forget about what's happening. Forget about what this person did or didn't do or said or didn't say or, you know, whatever is happening. And what, what can I do? Because I can always do something. You know, I was, I was reading something the other day. Well, it wasn't from a devotee, but it was, it was really interesting. They were giving the example of people in uh, Nazi Europe who were in the concentration camps and who put their mind in, and emotions in such a way that they were unaffected and they were happy. Yeah. And the person was saying, if, if somebody could do that in that sort of a situation... Why can't we do that? We're living in opulence that's practically unheard of for the last, you know, thousand years of human history. The opulence and ease of our life is is unbelievable if you're in a developed country. Mm. And, you know, I can't put my, I can't choose 
my thoughts and my feelings to bring me happiness, living in full freedom and opulence, and somebody can do it when they're beaten and starved and threatened with death at every moment. You know, and it was like, oh yeah. <laughs> you just may have to remind your mind of that. You know, I, I really do have the ability. I really do have the, the power to choose how I view my reality and how I experience my reality. I really, really do. I can connect with Krishna in this moment. I can offer this moment to Krishna. I don't have to be the slave of my, my body and my senses and my mind. And, and I, I just, I don't need to be. I mean, sometimes it's, it's hard and sometimes it may take us an hour or two hours or a day before we go, oh yeah, oh that, that's right, oh yeah. But hopefully those times are become less and less and less and hopefully the time gets shorter and shorter as we progress in bhakti that we're like, oh yeah, what does it say in the Bhagavad Gita? All right. <laughs> well, thank you for reminding us of that big critical principle. That's lovely. Thank you. Sure, sure. And then I want to say I'd like to ask a question if you can hear me and if we have time. I can hear you and I have a little bit of time, yes. Okay, with Priya Prata, he was in the position where he needed the feminine energy of his wife. Uh, could you explain what it is that you mentioned that is the feminine energy and why is it that an emperor or somebody is in a position of ruling vast enough that people need that, whereas Renunti at the top? All right, very good question. Actually, this will be discussed more in later verses, so I don't want, I was just kind of touching on it. Uh, but a person who's dealing with the world and, and all the external difficulties of the world, it's much easier to do that if you have a balance of masculine and feminine energy in your life externally. And that's true for both men and women. I mean, it's, it kind of... Uh, let's look at it spiritually. So spiritually, we're all meant to be serving Radha Krishna or Sita Ram or Lakshmi Narayan. The Lord is always with his potency who is feminine that the Lord is a supreme masculine and his potency is a supreme feminine and the way that the jiva is designed to enjoy is to facilitate the union of the supreme masculine and the supreme feminine so that's true for any form of God whether you're Hanuman restoring Sita to Ram or whether you're uh, facilitating Lakshmi Narayan or Radha Krishna and in fact when we say we should work to please God. What we're saying, God has an energy of pleasure. So when we say one should please God, what we're really saying is that we unite the Lord with his energy of pleasure. We act as the catalyst. Now you can say the Lord is always with Lakshmi. He's called, he has the Srivatsa. But when we act in that way, we experience that union of the supreme masculine and feminine energies. And that's what the Hare Krishna mantra is, of course. It's a bringing together of the supreme masculine and the supreme feminine. That's what Omkar is, according to Jiva Goswami. So that's our natural position as a spiritual being. Now, if we haven't, if we're not accessing that, if, uh, what was I reading the other day, Prabhupada says, the opulence of the Jiva in the material world is practically, I forget what word he used, extinguished or, or invisible to him or inaccessible, I forget the, the word. 
But this is our natural opulence, is to be feeling that union of the ultimate perfect masculine and ultimate perfect feminine. So then we seek that externally. We take roles in our li- in different lives. Sometimes we take the role of feminine. Sometimes we take the role of masculine. And then we need the other to balance us. I mean, I've noticed that even in same-sex couples, one of them tends to take the role of the other gender, isn't it? You know, that's what we see practically. That there's, there's this wanting to have this balance. Of course, even within ourselves... Uh, we all have some of both the masculine and feminine hormones, and astrologically, we all have some signs and some planets in feminine signs and some planets in masculine signs. And we're, we're looking for that, that we're looking for that perfect balance and that perfect harmony. And that's meant to be found, of course, in household life, and people who artificially are not in household life will try to steal that. That's, I, that's what we see practically. They'll, they'll try to steal that balance. So a renunciate, why don't they need that? Because they're in touch enough with the spiritual. It may not be 100%, but they're in touch enough with the spiritual that they don't need some external arrangement. And if a person isn't enough in touch with the spiritual, then they better have the external arrangement legitimately and dharmically, or they're going to cause a problem. But it's not... It, it's, a, it's a misconception that a renunciate doesn't have a need for a balance of, of masculine and feminine energies. That they're just people who just don't have that kind of need. That, that's impossible because that's part of the soul. So it just means that they're achieving that need more spiritually. And that's the idea that in household life, by engaging in bhakti, you learn to experience that within yourself spiritually. So that less and less and less as you get older you have a need to try to look for that externally on a, on a physical and, and emotional level. And that's, that's what happens. That's supposed to be what happens, and that's what happens. Now, there's going to be some people, a small minority, who are already at that level when they're 20, that most people aren't going to get to till they're 50 or 60. They're already functioning at that level. And whatever part of them is not fully uh, bhaktiized, then they try to engage in, in preaching. And Prabhupada says to see the world as their, as their family. But we, we've got to be experiencing that. I mean, there's, there's not a question of saying, I'm not going to experience that. Frankly, even impersonalists are experiencing that on some even perfect impersonalists in the Brahman. Because even in Om, even in Omkara, is also a manifestation of that. So that's our natural position. To say that we don't need it or is is not authentic. Uh, and, and people again, they have many, 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 many ways of of trying to steal it if they if they actually need it and they're not getting it dharmically. People have super like I met this lady recently in her thirties, never married. And she's, you know, constantly watching romantic movies. So she's trying to steal it that way. You know, does that answer your question? You know, it's a shame. I It does, but I wish we had more time. This is really interesting. It opens up a whole... Well, Krishna will always arrange that the right people speak on the right things at the right time. 
He's really good about that. All right, thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you.